You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. The meal we're looking at this morning, as you heard from Jimmy, is, is the Last Supper. Um, the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated on the night he was betrayed, and the first Lord's Supper. I kind of like, I'm not always big on the titles that we've inserted into the text in our Bibles, but in the... Uh, in the CSB that we use mainly here, it's the title given from verse, 20, uh, from verse 14 is the first Lord's Supper, and that's very true. The last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples was the first Lord's Supper that we celebrate here every week. And I've told you before that um, to some people, some of my colleagues, the fact that we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week is a bit weird. And... Um, I was recalling this week a couple of conversations I've had with other pastors, one who said that um, their practice was better than ours because in their church they celebrate the Lord's Supper four times a year, and so it's this big deal, right? It's a a significant thing that they do. This is four times a year. It's like, I don't know, it's like Christmas, Easter, communion. Um, And so they are able to really maximize the importance of, Um, and the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper. And then another conversation I had with someone, again, about the fact that we share communion every week, he was like, well, in our church, we don't do anything that that we think would be really weird to someone who hasn't grown up in church. And the Lord's Supper, you doing that every week is weird, right? Telling people to come and and eat Jesus' body and drink his blood, that's that's off-putting and potentially kind of, you know, just weird, for people who didn't grow up in church. So they're two kind of critiques of our practice of sharing the Lord's Supper every week. And maybe they're right. You know, maybe, they've got a, maybe they've got a point. But either way, the truth is that we need to know really well why we do this thing that we do every week. We need to understand why, why, why do we do this? If someone came to you and said, what... You know, what do you do at church? And you told them, and then they said, why do you have the Lord's Supper every week? Why, why do you do communion? It would be great for you to have a deep, profound, biblical answer to that question, and that's my purpose this morning, okay? So here's the truth we just need to come to terms with, and it's kind of the same truth we need to come to terms with every week. We, in 35 minutes, can't get to the bottom of this thing. We can't plump, look, you can't do it in 35 years, of being a Christian. You can't plumb the depths of the meaning of the Lord's Supper of communion. It's too deep. But what I want to do this morning is, is give us kind of four foundational truths that will help us shape our understanding of what it means. When I say it's deep, I mean it's really deep. It's cosmic, right? It's almost beyond the scope of our comprehension. I like what Peter Lighthart said. He says this about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the world in miniature. It has cosmic significance. Within it we find clues to the meaning of all creation and all history, to the nature of God and the nature of man, to the mystery of the world, which is Christ. Though the table stands at the center, its effects stretch out to the four corners of the earth. I remember my history lecturer at, uh, 
at Bible College said that, he said, tell me your theology of the Lord's Supper and I will tell you your theology of everything. And I didn't get it at the time, but I think I'm starting to understand. This is so deeply foundational to all that we believe as Christians. So here's the four things, those four foundational truths I want to talk to you about. First of all, redemption. Second, remembrance. Third, participation. And fourth, promise. Redemption, remembrance, participation, and promise. So let's start with redemption, all right? We're going to go to verse 7 to 13 of Luke 22. He says, Then the day of unleavened bread came, when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. Listen, he said to them. When you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. First thing that jumps out at you when you read that little passage is that Luke mentions the word Passover five times. And you need to know, normally in the Bible, this is a literary device, right? The repetition of the same word over and over again or the same phrase is to show us this is important. It's a big arrow. You can write one in your, do one in your Bible, underline, Passover. This is really important. It's like saying, um, it's almost redundant. It's like saying, uh, this Thursday, which is the day after Wednesday, which is Thursday, I'm going to do something important on Thursday, right? It's just like really emphatic. Thursday is what's important in that sentence here. Passover, five times mentioned by Luke because the Passover is so foundational to our understanding of the Lord's Supper of Communion. And for us, particularly at this church, Red Door Church, in the very name, for us particularly, this link between Passover and the cross is deeply important. So if you've been around for a little while and you haven't picked up on that connection, then, then here's what it's about. First of all, here's the thing about the name, right? Some people would think our name's weird. Um, the, the name is kind of designed to work on a couple of levels. It's meant, to be, um, it's meant to be easily accessible to people like the people who are going to come at 5 o'clock today, Red Door Church. If you're not religious, if you don't have church background, if you don't know any theology, whatever, it's meant to be accessible to you, right? Red Door, and like kids get that. But for those of us who want to go deeper, there is so much depth of meaning to the name. And it's all rooted in this connection between Passover and the cross. So what I want to do is, and this is dangerous because it requires you tuning in as I read something off a screen, but this is, this is how we've explained it on our website. If you go to our website, go to the About page, here's what we say. The story of Red Door begins over 3,000 years ago in, in the land of Egypt. The book of Exodus tells of the rescue of God's people from slavery 
despite the opposition of the greatest superpower in the world and the unbelief of God's people themselves. The Israelites were suffering under slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, but their cry for freedom was heard by the Lord, and he responded by sending Moses to demand that the slaves be set free. However, the Egyptian pharaoh refused to listen, so God sent plague after terrible plague, culminating in the tenth and most devastating. God's angel of death was sent to kill every firstborn in Egypt. In his mercy, God graciously provided a way of salvation, telling the people to paint the blood of a spotless lamb on their doors as a sign to the angel to pass over their homes, to pass over their homes, and so spare them. Faith in the blood of God's lamb was their salvation. Thus, beginning with the blood-painted doors of the Passover in Exodus 12 and fulfilled in Jesus, who Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7 is our Passover lamb, the red door has long been a symbol of redemption, refuge, and hope. In fact, going back to cathedral architecture in the Middle Ages... The color red signifying the blood of Christ was painted on the doors of the church, marking the building as a sanctuary, as a refuge and safety zone from physical or spiritual dangers. Being Red Door Church provides us with a regular reminder of God's love and mercy and awakens us to our common status as one-time slaves who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. There is a deep and profound connection between the Passover in Egypt and the cross of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we called this place Red Door. That's why this is so important to us. That's really part of the reason why we share the Lord's Supper every week. It calls to mind all of that history, all of that theology. It reminds us who God is and what he's done for us. So every time we gather around the table, like we're going to do straight after this sermon today, every time we gather around the table, it should call to mind that glorious story of redemption. And it should encourage us to rehearse it as we eat the bread and drink the cup. The Lord's Supper is about redemption. It's also about, point two, remembrance. So go back to 22. I'm going to read 19 to 20. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Why why do we remember when we come to the table? Why is this meal about remembrance? Two reasons at least. First of all, because Jesus said so. That pretty much is all you need to say, right? That's what he said. He gave us the meal and he said, here's the purpose clause. 
Do this, why? In remembrance of me. Do this, whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Whenever you do this, when you do this as a group of 120 disciples, the earliest days of the church, when that dramatically jumps by 3,000 plus uh, at Pentecost, when, when the gospel makes it to the ends, literally the ends of the earth at Caroline Springs, whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. It's a perpetual command. Second reason, right, Jesus told us to do it, so that's why we do it. Second reason is remembering reaffirms in our mind, affirms and reaffirms the fact that it is finished. The fact that what Jesus said as he gave up his life on the cross, when he said it is finished, he was speaking the truth. And so we remember something that has taken place in the past, something that is finished, something that is full, perfect, sufficient. It is finished. And so we remember it then. This might sound a little bit pedantic to some of you, and I, I don't mean it to be offensive to anybody, but this table, this table is not an altar. I know we use that term colloquially for the table that we see up the front of a church. We see, you know, people get married at the altar. But this table is not an altar. Why? What happens on an altar? Sacrifice. What the Lord's Supper reminds us as we remember is that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all, full, perfect, sufficient. It is finished. And so, uh, in some traditions, Christian traditions, their understanding of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, and the reason that they call the table an altar is that their understanding is that literally the priest is re-sacrificing Jesus every time you have communion. That's kind of what the priest is for. If you're going to have a sacrifice, you need a priest, and so you have a priest in a church so that he can do the sacrifice. And in some sense, Jesus is being re-sacrificed week after week or day after day. The reason we call it a table and not an altar is because we don't believe that that is true. We believe Jesus was sacrificed once for all. And we get this not just from our tradition, but from Scripture. So in in pretty much the whole book of Hebrews, you can read this time after time, but perhaps most explicitly in Hebrews chapter 10, it says this, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. When Jesus sits down at the right hand of God, it it demonstrates the completion of his work. It demonstrates that he was sacrificed, yes, but once for all, offering one sacrifice for sins forever, the end. It 
So these two things, right, the, the fact that, it, that, that Jesus is the one who instituted this continual remembrance of him in the Lord's Supper and the fact that it is finished, that it was once for all, the, these, these truths are beautifully summed up in one of our prayers. Uh, as Anglicans, we have a prayer book and uh, the Book of Common Prayer, first written in 1552, then updated in 1662. That's the best version. We've got more modern versions with language easier to understand, but that's the one you want to go back to for the, for the really beautifully written, rich theology. And here's what it says in the communion service in the Book of Common Prayer. Just listen to this. It says, All glory be to thee, almighty God, our heavenly Father, who of thy tender mercy didst give thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation, oblation just means uh, offering, by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world and did institute and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that his precious death until his coming again. That prayer pretty much summarizes everything I'm going to say here this morning. That is beautiful truth, timeless truth. And so, Lord, the Lord's Supper that we're about to share is about redemption. It's about remembrance. It's also about participation. Let me just step out of Luke's gospel for a second into 1 Corinthians. If you want to learn about communion, you want to go to the book of 1 Corinthians, particularly chapter 11. Paul does the, the most lengthy sort of um, teaching on what communion is all about. But since we're doing this series in Luke's gospel, I want to spend most of our time there. Nonetheless, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, this is what Paul says. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? His point is, this is a participatory thing, right? This is not just something we observe. This is something we do. And it might sound obvious, but it's a foundational truth for the Lord's Supper. This, is, this, this thing that we do requires doing. It requires doing, not just knowing or saying. The worst thing I could do would preach a sermon on this and then we don't share the Lord's Supper together. That would be being hearers of the word and not doers of the word. And so the Lord's Supper is participatory. This is important for us to know, guys, because our church is probably the kind of church that because we love the word and because we love thinking about deep things, we are in danger of just being hearers and not doers. We're in danger of enjoying saying the truths that are true and not doing the truths that are true. And so it's probably no surprise that my friend who's Church celebrates the Lord's Supper four times a year is a very word-based church, 
Right, we preach the word. That's what we do every week. But it's not enough just to hear and not to do. Here's how I said it in that little series guide we gave out to you at the beginning of this sermon series. I said, while we vary the liturgical element of communion at Red Door, sometimes more, sometimes less, we must always remember that the Lord's Supper is more than words. Jesus didn't call us to say this, but to do this in remembrance of me. Thus, we are not merely observers, but participants in the drama of redemption taking place at the table. Now, even knowing all of this, even maybe understanding all of this, here's what we have to reckon with. This is a fact of the universe. Familiarity breeds contempt. So this is the argument against what we do, right? You do it every week, people are just going to forget they're even doing it. They already know the words to the liturgy. They already know the prayers. They already know what to do and when to do it. And so they will end up ignoring, maybe even abusing the Lord's Supper. And we need to reckon with that truth. Participation is great, but participation doesn't, doesn't guarantee engagement, right? Participation doesn't guarantee engagement. All of the VCE students said, amen. Just turning up, just going through the motions doesn't guarantee any kind of heart-level engagement. Do you know how many times I've turned up to this church driving the same 2Ks from my house to this place, get, get out of my car and think, how did I get here? Have you ever done that? You're just so familiar with the same route or with the same practice, whatever it is, and you just you don't even remember doing the thing that you've just done because you're so used to it. Hey, here's dr- driving as example, but here's another example. When it comes to my row, I line up, and then I walk up here, and then I put my hands out, and they give me bread, and then I take a cup, and I go back to my seat at some point. You can do that every week and not even know you've done it. You can show contempt for the Lord's Supper by not actively engaging heart and mind in the practice. So here's a good application for something of a, a buzzword for a popular term going around at the moment. Sarah will nod as I say the word mindfulness. You heard that? You heard that concept? It's really a no, an acknowledgement that we're so just buzzing from one thing to another in today's society that we never stop and actually live in the here and now. So this practice of mindfulness is meant to re-engage us with what's going on now. Like most of you are thinking about what you're having for lunch. Mindfulness would encourage you just to usher your mind back. That that is not yet happening. Engage with what is happening now. 
And that, my friends, could be a very helpful thing for you to do when you get up, line up, take bread and take wine. Engage with what is going on right now in the universe. Right now, what is God doing in this ancient practice of sharing bread and wine? A few years ago, I saw a psychologist for a whole bunch of issues that I was facing and he was big on this mindfulness idea. He called it, he referred to it as, as awareness, but it's the same kind of thing. And he, he made these little audio recordings for me. They were like little um, meditations. And he was a Christian guy, so he, he had a, a theological um, element to them where he wanted me to engage with what, what is God doing now? If God is active in all things at all times, what is he, what is he doing now? What is he revealing to you now? What is he... Um, where is his grace evident right now? And so he made this one that was called Awareness of Chocolate, which is a mindfulness exercise using chocolate. And it was just like a five-minute thing. He said, get it, get some chocolate, put it in your mouth. Don't just chew it up and swallow it, but just let it be there. And then he sort of talked you through um, engaging with the experience of chocolate, eating chocolate. And it was kind of a profound thing to do when you've spent your whole life just scarfing it down and moving on to the next thing, like engaging with this thing, this pretty remarkable thing that's happening right now. The same is true, and I've encouraged you over and again, when you take that bread, don't just chuck it back. Like, put it in your mouth and let it sit for a minute. What does this represent Same with the wine or the juice, whatever you take. What does this actually mean? An engagement with the here and now-ness of the Lord's Supper. Doing something habitually over and over again can lead to contempt, going through the motions, unless you practice unless you practice an engagement with an awareness of what's really going on. So I love what Tim Chester says. This is what he says, and you notice he uses the word practice over and again. This is quite beautiful. He says, in a busy culture with people desperate to succeed, we practice in the meal resting on the finished work of Christ. In a fragmented culture, that is radically individualistic, we practice in the meal belonging to one another. In a dissatisfied culture of constant striving, we practice in the meal receiving this world with joy as a gift from God. In a narcissistic culture of self-fulfillment, we practice in the meal joyous self-denial and service. And in a proud culture of self-promotion, we practice in the meal humility and generosity. All of those things are practices. All of those things, like practices, we become more proficient as, as we practice them. So if you start fresh today, And if you kind of make a commitment to yourself and to us and to Jesus himself that you will actively engage in the deep 
profound meaning of the Lord's Supper as you come to share it week after week, then that practice will enable you to more and more understand and participate in the Lord's Supper. Redemption, remembrance, participation. Lastly, certainly not leastly, promise. Chapter 22, 14 to 18. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So yes, this meal is very much about remembrance, but it's not just about looking backward. It's also about looking forward. When Paul tells the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper in in 1 Corinthians 11, he says... As often as you eat this drink and, you, and uh, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's a forward-looking aspect to this, so you need to get this right in your head. If you've got a terrible sense of direction like me, you're going to struggle. If you're a normal person, you'll get this better. All right. So when you come to the meal, you've got to have your your bearings right. You're looking backward, remembrance of what Jesus did for you on the cross. You're looking forward, though, to his second coming. He's coming again when he will finally and fully bring to bear the new creation, the kingdom of God. And in that new creation, Jesus says, this meal will be fulfilled. This meal will find its fullest expression And so remember, we've said this all through. Every one of these meals we've looked at and every meal that Jesus eats in the Gospels is in some sense pointing forward to the meal, capital T, capital M, the meal to come. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The feast that we'll share as Jesus takes his bride, the church, and celebrates their irrevocable, unbreakable union. New heavens, new earth. That's the meal that all these meals are pointing forward to. That's the meal that this meal is pointing forward to. Remember, we've gone through this a couple of times, but remember the words of Isaiah in chapter 25, 800 or so, six to 800 years before Jesus institutes this meal, here's what Isaiah says about that great meal yet to come. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare all the peoples a feast of choice meat. Amen, Jimmy? Amen. (laughs) A feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. That was Isaiah's prophecy of the great meal yet to come. And then John looking, as it were, through a window into the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation chapter 19. Here's what he says. 
He says, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. And so in this way, my friends, this communion meal that we're about to share, this Lord's Supper is a foretaste of the celebration of God's final victory and the coming of the new creation. Nothing less. Let's pray and then I'll invite uh, Dooku to come and he'll lead us through the sharing of this most precious meal. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for giving us every good gift. One of your most precious gifts is the gift of this meal. And so we confess that from time to time we've treated it with contempt. And from time to time we've practiced it unmindfully. So we pray now by our work of your spirit that you would awaken us to the depth of the riches of this most beautiful meal. As we eat bread and drink wine or juice, I pray that you would call to mind all, all of your great deeds throughout history, your beautiful and magnificent and glorious plan of redemption for your people, rooted in ages past, made manifest in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus and rehearsed once more now as we gather around this, your table. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.